guardian angels and patron saints. Pray for us. Well, in the season of Advent, we continue our march through the basic presentation of the gospel message here on this third Sunday of Advent, which we call Gaudete Sunday, or Rejoice. We focus on the news of our rescue. The first Sunday of Advent, we spoke about that we are creatures of a good God, an all-good and all-powerful God, and that we were placed on this earth to be loved and to love. That is our mission. The second Sunday of Advent, we spoke about how this good creation has been attacked and is actually caught up in a spiritual war, and it's being waged by a, a great and powerful enemy that wants to enslave and degrade us through lies and manipulation and deception. This Sunday, we have a special reason to rejoice because it's fitting in this context that we be able to speak about the news of this new kingdom which has been inaugurated by Christ to free us, to free us from the dominion of sin. And that this was accomplished through the life and death and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. This dimension or this step in the presentation of the basic gospel message forces us to shift our image of Jesus. I think we're very comfortable with the imagery of Jesus as a, a tender and merciful shepherd, a gentle soul who's here to present comfort and consolation and grace and mercy to us. And all these things are true, but they leave out an important dimension of, of his mission as, as a warrior, really a warrior, a soldier who has entered history dropping in behind the lines of battle into enemy territory to subvert and sabotage the, the effort of that enemy. He hides in a humble way in order to throw out some bait to lure the enemy out into the open. Lure him out into the open so as to reveal him and to conquer him definitively. Before Christ came to live and to die and to rise, again, we hear in that second part of the gospel message that all of creation, not just the human race, but all of creation, everything that God made was captured, held captive under the reign of Satan, the father of lies, he who was a murderer from the beginning. And among creatures, the human race was responsible for that enslavement because of our disobedience. That we took the knowledge of the took the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this was a tactic by our enemy to enslave and degrade us. There was no escape from this situation. A slave is by definition incapable of freeing 
himself or herself. And those who are born to slaves, as the sad history of slavery teaches us, those who are born to slaves are themselves slaves. So all of us, all of us, were held captive. We remained groaning under that reign of sin with nothing more than hope of rescue to sustain us. So when we call Christ the Savior, the Redeemer, what we mean is that he took us out from under the dominion of our enemy and called us to himself into the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of this world. He took us out from slavery and brought us into his kingdom. And he silenced the voice of the enemy who simply tempts us again and again to believe that there is no hope, there is no escape. And how did he do this? How was this accomplished? How did he bring about our rescue and our liberation, our redemption? How did we escape from the realm of death? How did we escape from its dominion and slavery to sin? Through the death of God. That is how we were delivered, through the death of God. Hidden in the manger, living in the house at Nazareth with Mary and Joseph, teaching the crowds, feeding them, working his signs and miracles, Jesus was preparing for a confrontation with the enemy of the human race. And that was held on a hill outside Jerusalem called Golgotha. All of his ministry, all of his life, from the very first moment that he, was, <clears throat> that he took on human flesh, was a process of luring his enemy, our enemy, out into the open, to openly appear for this definitive conflict, this showdown. You see, Satan isn't a fool. He understands very clearly that he cannot fight God openly. God is all-powerful, almighty. He would not survive that battle. And so he, he always works through whispers, distortions, manipulations. No other form of conflict is possible for him. And so God needed something like a lure, bait, to draw Satan into the open, to gather up his forces and in one fell swoop place it all on the line. And how did he do this? What was the bait? What was the lure? It was himself. Jesus was the bait. Jesus was the lure. His humanity without violence, without an army, political will, without claiming anything apart from total fidelity to his Father, Jesus appears on the scene. And it becomes clear through the machinations of the Pharisees and the leaders of the people that a, a storm is gathering to crush him. 
And on the day of his passion, the great gaping mouth opens to take him. The mouth of death swallows life. And from within, life explodes. Jesus laid himself out vulnerable, defenseless, as a kind of ambush, concealing his power in such a way as to cause death to swallow him so that he could destroy it from within. This was not a a simulation. This was not mere appearance. Jesus was really human, and he really suffered. He suffered the torture of crucifixion, both in his body and in his soul. And precisely because of this, he, he could conquer death as a victim of death. His divinity used the bait of his human nature on the hook of the cross to lure this wild beast out of its lair into the open, to slay it once for all. And it was in his resurrection that once for all put death to death. And so this heroic act, this self-sacrifice, accomplished many things. And the first thing that it accomplished was to reveal to us our true value. Because when we see Christ on the cross, I see what I am worth to God. This is why we have a crucifix in every Catholic church. It shows us this is what I paid to rescue you. This is what you are worth to me. Don't ever forget it. Don't listen to the lie that tells you otherwise. You are worth the humiliating and painful death of the Son of God. And he paid through the crown of thorns, the scourging, the humiliation, and abandonment for you. And in so doing, in that crucifixion, he also accomplished the humiliation of our enemy. He exalts us and humiliates our enemy. It was the custom of the Roman Empire for generals when they were victorious after a campaign against an enemy of the empire to capture the generals and captains of that foreign army and to bring them back to the city of Rome and to enter triumphantly into the city. There was a special gate, actually, in the city of Rome specifically for triumphal entries of victorious generals and emperors. Julius Caesar did this after an eight-year war in Gaul. And he brought the leaders of those tribes and armies in chains back to Rome, and he paraded them down to the Forum. And he forced them to kneel and to kiss the standard of the Roman Empire, and then marched them off in chains again. Now this act of cruelty, prosecuted by a pagan empire, 
is where we borrow the language of Christ leading the principalities and powers of this world in triumphal procession. He is the victorious general who has enslaved the enslavers. He has slain the murderers. And now, although we ourselves also die, we know, we know through faith that death is not able to hold us forever. The faithful departed, those who have been claimed, who are members of his kingdom, they are under the reign of Christ, not under the domain of the enemy. And so we pray and wait in hope that he who rose from the dead will find it easier to raise us and all the dead than it is for you and I to wake someone from sleep. Another effect of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross is that it gives us access to the Father. It gives us assurance that our prayers reach his ear. That in fact, we can no longer doubt whether or not God hears us or whether we are favorable to him, whether he, whether he is pleased with us. We know many examples of people who get a job, for instance, or a, an appointment only on account of the fact that they know someone who works or who has control of the schedule, right? The recommendation of another employee or a person who's already in provides access to those whom they know. And among human beings, this is always an act of favoritism and is perhaps unjust. But in the reign of Christ, that is extended to all of us. Because we know Jesus, we have access to his Father. So too, Christ's use of himself as a sacrificial lamb to lure the enemy out into the open to conquer him once for all reveals the lies and manipulations of the enemy. And it gives us, for the first time in the history of the world, the capacity to reject those lies and to sin no more. Because we are now members of his kingdom, we no longer have to recognize the fact that whatever we do, whatever we offer to God, is always mixed with sin in our fallen status of those who are held captive. Before Christ, it was, it was not possible to live as a righteous person in God's sight. Baptism is the act which transfers us from the reign of sin to the reign of Christ. And although we still suffer, we no longer, excuse me, although we still sin, we no longer have to. Now, sin is no longer necessary. And though we still suffer, the grace of God transforms us by means of that suffering. The grace of God now is capable of purifying us in, in the midst of that. And because Christ has revealed the lies, manipulations, and temptations of our enemy, we now have authority over him. We too are part of that triumphal procession in which our enemy is chained 
we can see how in cases where temptation and doubts and confusion continue to attack us, that in the, in the name of our Savior, in the name of our Rescuer, Jesus, in the power of that name, we take authority and cast to the foot of the cross. In the holy name of Jesus, I send to the foot of the cross this spirit of deception or of confusion or of despair. I bind it, I silence it in the holy name of Jesus, and I send you to the foot of the cross to receive your sentence. We are no longer defenseless against the attacks of our enemy. He is no longer capable to tempt, discourage, confuse, or bring us to despair. All this, of course, means that what has been accomplished still requires a response on our part. It's not simply something that has happened in history, but that impacts each and every human being. That the gospel comes before each and every one of us and demands of us a response. We'll speak of this in the week to come. We'll speak of this in the fourth Sunday of Advent about what is the nature of that response and how do we gain access? How do we remain faithful and loyal to the kingdom of our Redeemer, the kingdom of heaven? But for now, let's rest and rejoice in the fulfillment of the good news promised to those many prophets who longed to see what we see, who longed to hear what we hear. They longed for the day when the desert and the parched land of an enslaved race would would exult, when the desert would bloom with abundant flowers. Rejoice with joyful song, when hands that are feeble would be strengthened, knees that are weak would be made firm, and those whose hearts were frightened would hear the word of the Lord, be strong, fear not. And as we are caught up into the praise of our great Savior on this Gaudete Sunday, Rejoice. May our praises of the Lord fulfill that promise that the Lord, that those whom the Lord has ransomed will return and enter Zion singing, crowned with everlasting joy. They will meet with joy and gladness, and sorrow and mourning will flee. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.